0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name's Chris Davy. I'm the Charles E. Scheidt Visiting Assistant Professor of Genocide Studies and Prevention at the Strasser Center for Holocaust Studies, uh, Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Clark University, and I have with me today uh, Roger McGinty, who's a professor in Defence Development and Diplomacy and the School of Government and International Affairs at Durham University. He's also the director of Durham's Global Security Institute. Hello, Roger. Welcome. Thanks very much, Chris. Thank you. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about your fairly new book. I was out earlier this year called Everyday Peace, How So-called Ordinary People can Disrupt Violent Conflict, and that was published with Oxford University Press. Um, so it was a delight to read the book, and we're going to be talking about, talking about it today. Uh, first of all, before we get started on the book itself, it'd be helpful for our listeners to know uh, more about you. Uh, perhaps you might be able to introduce yourself, tell us about your career briefly, and why work in peace and conflict studies.
1: Uh, well, I'm, I'm an academic. I'm a peace studies scholar. I drive a desk for a living. Um, So I I wouldn't class myself as a practitioner. Like most academics, I spend most of my time sending emails, uh, which merely garners more emails and more emails. But over the years, I've been fortunate enough to uh, visit many conflict-affected societies to observe, to engage in fieldwork. And... uh, know, be engaged in a number of debates uh, pertaining to the liberal peace, to hybridity, to um, notions of what the local is in peace study. And all of that has has shaped my approach to peace and conflict studies. I also come from Northern Ireland and uh, grew up in the midst of a very low level, but very bitter civil war. And I think that that has shaped a lot of my Thinking in relation to the role of states and groups in in relation to armed conflict. Mm, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I think we all feel like
0: that a little bit sometimes. With the the desk driving it can be a little bit overwhelming. Um, but thanks for that introduction. Um, so let's start on the book now. Um, the book is about everyday peace. Could you explain to us what this idea is and what it means?
1: Yes, uh, everyday peace is simply the the skills, the communication skills, the logics, the stances that we all use in everyday life to avoid awkward situations, to navigate our way through life. Now, we all do this in all societies, but it matters. It really matters in deeply divided or conflict-affected areas. How you speak, who you speak to, how you dress, where you go. All of these things really matter in terms of livability, in terms of your everyday uh, transactions through life. Uh, it pertains to the intragroup level and the intergroup level as well. So the book really is about unpacking this everyday peace, how people live in deeply divided societies. And in many ways, the book, on the origin of the book, was actually thinking about my own upbringing, and particularly, how did my parents raise six kids in the midst of a low-level civil war, living in a divided town, which was 50% Protestant, 50% Catholic? What sort of social skills did they require, what sort of tactical agency did they require and all the other parents require to continue living in the midst of a deeply divided society in which your neighbour identified quite differently from you and held quite different political views and views on a range of, of constitutional issues. So I was interested in the micro dynamics, in the everyday stances and act, actions and vernacular that people use really to survive and sometimes thrive in conflict-affected areas. Thank
0: you. Yeah, it's helpful to have that, um, your personal insight and understanding of that background as well. And there was one thing, I just you know, briefly, that I noted as I was reading the book, is that it, you really sort of drill down to the you know the uses of agency and, and as you said sort of social skills that people pick up and develop choose to use or choose not to use over time in these kinds of conflicts
1: uh, yes and and actually it isn't only uh, these sort of skills aren't only pertaining to deeply divided societies I often think about, migrants, about newcomers into into a society who have to work very hard to read the society, to work out how the society ticks, what is permissible and acceptable and what, is, uh, what isn't. And in a way, we all have these skills, but in some places and with some people, their antennae have to be working at all times. They have to work extra hard to um, on this tactical agency to, re- to really survive. Um, and a lot of it is down to performativity. A lot of it happens in interactions, in shops, in cafes, on public transport, etc. So it requires a lot of energy, this everyday piece, But for those who grow up or live in deeply divided societies, it becomes second nature. It becomes how you live. Um, Thus, for example, you know, I'm thinking about, say, um, shoppers and stall owners in northern Nigeria. Uh, The stall owners might be Christian, the shoppers uh, might be Muslim, and they've internalised and normalised a set of relationships, uh, a certain speech pattern that they would enunciate. It's almost like a script that they go through. And part of this script is to make sure that the transaction happens, that the shoppers can buy what they want. But a lot of this script is about conflict avoidance, about not talking About the elephant in the room, the conflict, the different confessional faiths, and how the politics connected to those um, might clash. So it's really fascinating to think about this tactical agency, this everyday um, vocabulary that we might use, the vernacular of actions and communication that eases life, that navigates passage, that lubricates the everyday actions just to make life livable. Mm,
0: yeah, thank you for that. So you've hinted at and mentioned an example of um, you know, a market in Nigeria and you share a lot of you know, rich examples in the book. Um, is there perhaps another one that comes to mind that you could share with our listeners to give us a, more of an idea of how this everyday piece works?
1: Uh, yes, I, I think I, I've recently moved back to Northern Ireland, and I'm I'm fascinated to reintegrate myself back here. And I'm fascinated by how people speak to one another. People um, they talk about the weather, they talk about road surfaces, they talk about council services. But whatever you do, you don't talk about politics. And these people are deeply political. These people um, vote in very high numbers. They um, vote for political parties with reasonably um, divergent patterns. But they meet each other on an everyday basis in, in shops, um, in uh, the street, etc. And they are civil uh, at all times. Um And that requires a certain skill, a certain dissembling in which people, for example, might work in a mixed workplace in which both Catholics and Protestants uh, operate entirely normally from nine to five. But after that, they go back. To their single identity homes and often because of residential segregation Catholics live in one area and Protestants live in another area. They socialize separately, they go to different sporting events, they have very separate self-opposed almost apartheid lives yet during the day professionally they get on very well. Now that requires immense skill a huge amount of dissembling of saying one thing and, and thinking uh, another um, and in one way you can think that it's very sad, it's dysfunctional and it clearly is but that's what allows this society to work that's what prevents this society from tipping over the edge It it is a conflict containment strategy and actually quite a successful one at that We can dismiss it uh, as negative peace, but at the same time, it's not conflict-inflaming. And I think we need to celebrate that a little more. I think we can be dismissive of negative peace, but sometimes that's all that's possible. And we, we, I think particularly academics, um, should celebrate or at least interrogate more positively what negative peace can do. Because possibly, just possibly, it might lead on to a positive peace.
0: Mm. Yeah, and I,
1: I I understand
0: what you're meaning there, and I, th- I think that often, as academics, we or generally that we we do you know have that very poor view or negative view of negative peace, <clears throat> and see it as going nowhere and as very sort of state constructed. But to understand it from this local level gives it new meaning and and hope as well as you're saying. So this kind of leads us into the next question I had for you. was It seems very much that Everyday Peace is about power and power relations. Um, so what does Everyday Peace add to our understanding of what power is and how it works?
1: Well, well in, in preparation for the book, I read widely outside of my home discipline, which would be politics and international relations. And I was very impressed by literature from sociology, anthropology, nursing studies and other places that really expanded my view on power and enabled me to move away from realist notions of power as being coercive and power over and instead to investigate plural forms of power, such as power from, power to, power with. And these emancipatory forms of power are often immaterial, so they're difficult to see, they're difficult for researchers to access, but they are relational, they are important and I think one of the messages from the book is that we need to challenge realists and take power away from them. It's not they don't have a monopoly over the study or the conceptualization conceptualization of power. Instead, I think we need to see multiple views of power, a plurality of power, in which power is often immaterial. It's often held by families, by individuals, by those on the margins. And we need to take seriously forms of power that academia can dismiss a little too readily. Thus, for example, spiritual uh, views of power or interpretations of power are often dismissed as a form of civil society or as faith-based agency. Um, But actually, they don't fit into those neat um, categorizations as neatly as a lot of academics would like. So I I think, for me, one of the messages from the book is that we need to um, step back from realist notions of power and accept plural, uh, plural notions of power, many of which are emancipatory, which are relational and people-centred.
0: Thank you. So again to to follow on quite closely from that you introduce in the book this idea or notion of circuitry to try and visualize and demonstrate the connectedness between you know actors and their surroundings and their interactions around peace. How does this help us, this idea of circuitry, how does it help us analyze uh, everyday peace? What what value does this add conceptually where, you know, one might already be able to turn to, say, network analysis or relational sociology instead? I,
1: I think it's complementary to, to those. And I, I have to say that I find a lot of the pre-existing literature on network theory uh, extremely useful. I wanted to build on, on work that I had uh, completed some years ago on the notion of, of hybridity. And one of the criticisms that was made of of hybridity was that it it didn't take the notion of power as seriously as it should, particularly structural power. And for me, peace, conflict, social phenomenon are circuits or networks in which there is connection, relationality, um, a series of of major and minor networks and I wanted to try to understand how peace and conflict don't exist in some sort of binary nor indeed some neat continuum. Instead they're the same thing and I, I run these three words peace and conflict together into this uh, into this um, peace and conflict one word, which I know is is offensive to anyone who respects the English language, but I think it's important that we see how the two are connected, how they co-produce one another, how they coexist in the same space. And for me, the notion of circuitry was a way of explaining how um, they are connected, how the micro and the macro and everything in between is connected how the political the social the cultural etc cetera, etc cetera, are all connected and it's worth noting that circuits and you know we can think of a neat circuit board that we might have in our laptop or or any electronic equipment we might have nearby but it's <laughs> worth thinking about those phone lines that we've seen on our travels in which hundreds, if not thousands, of wires are connected to the one pole. And it looks like a bowl of spaghetti, but it works. It's messy. And for me, thinking about how does the individual or the small group fit in to wider schemes within a deeply divided society... For me, that bowl of spaghetti or that mass of circuit wires was a way of conceiving this. It's a way of trying to capture the messy functionality and the relational nature between the individual and um, the institution. And seeing connections where ordinarily we mightn't see connections, thus we might very often... Uh, In the global north, we see conflict as somehow orientalized, exoticized as something that is happening over there in the global south. But, of course, we're part of those conflicts as well. We bank with the same banks that the Taliban bank with. You know, we're all part of that global financial network. We um, share many cultural traits with with groups armed groups that we would see as being very different fr- from us so for me circuitry was a way of trying to join it up it all up but at the same time to capture the messiness of it and i'm i'm quite comfortable in a way with conceptual and intellectual messiness because i i think it's more accurate it's more honest than overly neat conceptualizations that don't actually map to social phenomenon that we might see on the ground. Mm.
0: Yeah, and there's one thing that I really appreciated about the, you know, the balance of the book is that you, you, the circuitry is, is very thoroughly demonstrated through a variety of examples that you use uh, and we'll, we'll talk in a little bit about um, you know, the differences between um, you know the three phrases that you use in terms of sociality, reciprocity and solidarity, but those different levels, of those functions, and again, like these kind of um, you know, ranges of negative peace, dialogue, and social skills and interaction that people engage in, that's was something that I think the book really richly picks up. Um, so the the next question, again, you know, hopefully follows on quite well. Here um, is your connection with everyday peace to conflict disruption, which is a, a kind of a theme that picks up in the title. There it was picked up in the title. Um, so conflict disruption you know the way you describe it relates a little bit to conflict management resolution transformation which you know specialists in the field are familiar with these ideas and the differences between them so how is so well what is conflict disruption how is it different from these other ideas
1: um, conflict disruption is is a form of power and it is the power to recalibrate the conflict, the logic and narrative behind a conflict. We're familiar with the notion of disruption from our economic interactions. We're familiar, for example, with how Netflix and other streaming services have disrupted traditional terrestrial television, or how low-cost airlines have disrupted the market. Um, of legacy airline carriers. So it's important to note that disruption is not the same as interruption. Interruption is pressing pause and pressing it again, and the situation continues as was. With disruption, there is a disruption to the logic or the narrative or the assumptions that underpin a conflict, and therefore a a recalculation by the actors in the conflict. So in a way, conflict disruption is something that tries to interfere with the power relations that underline the conflict and hopefully make conflict actors reassess it could backfire and it could be that conflict actors redouble their efforts to intensify a conflict or it could make them recalculate and think that there are ways to lower the costs of the conflict to shift from direct violence to a uh, other forms of engagement such as negotiation or power sharing etc etc so Disruption, in many ways, is a moment that might, in optimal circumstances, lead to a process. Thank you. So,
0: then you described earlier, you know, your sort of personal experience and a little bit of the history of Northern Ireland you know, as a sort of a low-intensity conflict. Um, you know, and some might call it intractable. Right? There is all these different terms we have to describe these really complex. Long-term conflicts. So, and you've spoken to this a little bit already, but given a place like Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland, or even say somewhere like Eastern Congo, where conflict is complex and what we might call multi-directional and, and layered, where you have, you know, people or parties and groups engaging in violence against each other um, over a long period of time um how can everyday peace help us sort of see peace building in these contexts and see kind of a, a way out and uh, often you know uh, maybe members of the public or even academics or activists are sort of desperate to see you know well how do we or even people who are parties to the conflict themselves like are desperate to sort of see well how do we how do we stop the violence how do we end this right so in these kinds of really difficult low intensity conflict situations, how does, Everyday Peace help us kind of see peace there
1: or see a way out of those conflicts? I, I would hope that Everyday Peace can do three things. Um, one, it's a way of seeing. It's an analytical tool. It allows us, I hope, to uh, see conflict as multi-scalar, as multi-level. Uh, secondly, it allows us to take the local seriously, rather than always focus on elites, which overwhelmingly tend to be male and urban. It allows us to see people, to be people-centric, to realise that everyone has an everyday, that we usually live our lives locally. Uh, Most of our lives are uh, concerned with very basic things, such as work, work, education child care elder care etc and thirdly i think everyday peace allows us to recognize societal ripeness that is a willingness amongst people to engage in pro peace and pro peace pro social activities whilst there might not be political ripeness Because it's noticeable in quite a few conflict-affected areas that actually people on the ground are more willing to engage in coexistence, possibly conciliation, than those at elite levels of political and militant organisations. So for me, primarily, everyday peace is a way of seeing and also of recalibrating um, the values that we attach to various actors in a conflict, and making sure that we treat the everyday, the local, the individual, the family, um, as really important units—political uh, units—and therefore we need to take them seriously.
0: Mm, definitely, and yeah, and again, Reitman, that's something that you know other scholars have have highlighted, but then the, in the book that you. You know, sort of show us a way to see, you know, what we're missing, you know, with perhaps, you know, more traditional top down models of peace building, you know, the solutions or negotiations are imposed, but then how do we see that from the bottom up and then all those interactions in between. Uh, so I wanted to shift gears a little bit here for us to talk a bit more about some of the the fieldwork and the data that's used in the book. So perhaps if you could just tell us generally about some of the different sources that you used and resources that you used to support the, the book.
1: Uh, yes. Uh, well, the book took... Many years to write, I have to. I have to say, and whilst there are many professional disadvantages linked to that, um, I think there are advantages in that I was able to collect material from a number of research projects that I had been working on over the years, and actually distill a, a lot of that data rather than try to interrogate it immediately. Actually to do so in in a more leisurely and reflective way, and get various types of data to speak to one another so i've been vol i 've been involved in in a number of projects over the years. perhaps the most um, important of those in my professional life has been something called everyday peace indicators which i 've been working on for about ten years or so, primarily with Professor Pamina Farshaw from Brandeis University in the US. And over the years, we've been attempting to perfect a bottom-up way of capturing community-sourced indicators of peace, development and security at the hyper-local level. And actually, the data from that uh, has been wonderful in showing a different sort of war story, a very different sort of narrative than one would get from, for example, elite interviews. It was actually very refreshing and indeed humbling uh, on reading transcripts and looking at many indicators to see how people experience conflict and peace in ways that are very immediate, very local. So the area that people are primarily interested in is the home and the immediate vicinity of the home. It was also very noticeable just how gendered um, experiences of peace and conflict were. Another major data source for the book was a a large project I led called Making Peacekeeping Data Work for the United Nations. And one of the findings of that project was that international organizations collect a large amount of data, often security incident related data, but they don't really know what to do with it. And again, if you aggregate that data, it doesn't really give a particularly accurate view of how conflict is experienced by people on the ground. So I was interested in the disparity of accounts of conflict, because if the UN see the same conflict one way, but people in the ground see it on the ground see it a different way. Well, how is the UN meant to satisfy um, community needs or community aspirations? And then a third major source for the book is one that is surprisingly overlooked by peace and conflict studies, and that is World War I and World War II memoirs and personal diaries. One of the things that has often intrigued me Is the ahistoricism of peace and conflict studies, and how many articles begin with the term when the Cold War ended. You know, they they tend to uh, reckon that the world began in 1989 or 1991. But after reading many first hand accounts of conflict um, from the world wars, It's pretty clear that that the experiences that people had on the ground, the hopes, the fears, the anxieties, actually are very much the same as accounts that we can read from Syria or Yemen or many other conflict-affected places in the present day. And then the fourth and and final major um, source for the book Really was to read widely outside of my disciplinary comfort zone. So I really enjoyed engaging with sociology, with anthropology, with sociolinguistics, even material from from nursing studies and cultural studies. Material that really I, I hadn't been exposed to, and I, I, I found it a real joy to 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 read and and to. Learn from that. So the, the book um, really draws on a hodgepodge of, of sources, and I'm actually quite pleased by that. It's it's not very faithful to a single discipline, and I think it's probably a stronger book as a result of that. Definitely,
0: and I, you know, as a you know, I often attempt to describe myself as an interdisciplinary scholar, uh, and I to me that book really the book really spoke. In those terms, across dif- different disciplines, translating some of those ideas, um, and I did find the, the use of the the soldier memoirs in World War One, World War Two, quite intriguing. Um, not least because my sort of um, you know wedge into academia as an undergraduate, and then even as a secondary school student, was learning about the histories of World War One, World War Two, and uh, and you're right, and oftentimes we have a blind spot for these periods because they're in some ways appear to be so overrun, um, especially when we think about what's missing from you know secondary school or high school curriculum. So I'm wondering if you might be able to say a little bit more about those memoirs um, and what we can learn about everyday peace from, from these accounts.
1: The memoirs and, and diaries are, are a really good resource. Um, and I think we dismiss them at our own peril. Uh, the, there's a there's a sense that we can see them as being too immediate, too raw, um, as unacademic, often as being jingoistic. But these were people who were there, who were in World War One and World War Two, who were mobilised, who were conscripted, who often. Um, were brutalised, who suffered from what we would now call post-traumatic stress uh, syndrome. And very often the books are full of those quiet thoughts, those um, emotions that we don't find in dry academic texts. Now, some of these diaries and memoirs are... Not terribly reflective. They are full of suppressed emotion. But some of them are magnificent. Some of them have a disarming honesty. And they also very well capture how people on the ground are removed, very far removed, from the strategic, from the elite, and from the political with a big P, how they are concerned with the everyday. They are concerned with where am I going to sleep tonight? When am I going to get my next meal? They're concerned with um, uh, really making it to the end of the day. They're concerned with the prosaic, the everyday, the immediate And that really spoke to my interest in everyday peace, everyday development, everyday security. This granularity that, let's face it, occupies most of our time every day, but seems to be written out of many accounts of peace and conflict. So what I wanted to do was to bring the everyday back into the study of peace and I found that these memoirs, although from a different era, were incredibly useful, a really useful window into emotion, into sentiment um and i I really would recommend that uh, peace and conflict studies takes more seriously past conflicts um as a guide to current conflict. Mm, Definitely.
0: I second that. (laughs) Um, So through these soldier memoirs and the other data that you you pull from, you're able to kind of stratify, if you will, everyday peace through looking at sociality, reciprocity and solidarity. Um, Perhaps you'd be able to explain for us what these three sort of elements of everyday peace are and how they relate to each other.
1: Uh, Yes. So I see sociality as, as simply humans recognizing the human in other people. Um, I would see reciprocity as a, I mean, frankly, we're all aware of reciprocity. I do something to for you in the expectation that hopefully you will repay the kindness. And of course, what we're actually doing is making a statement about society or the society that we want to live in. Solidarity is the most demanding of these three because it requires that we stand and act with the other. And clearly that's difficult. That is um, sometimes risky in conflict-affected societies. So I would see sociality, reciprocity and solidarity as stretched out on the continuum with sociality mapping on to weak everyday peace reciprocity mapping on to medium everyday peace and solidarity mapping on to strong everyday peace and these are these are actions ways of thinking emotions that we can find in our everyday life, but they're, I think, particularly meaningful in conflict affected societies, uh, particularly in relation to intergroup exchange or encounter. Mm, thank you.
0: Um, so, the next set of questions I wanted to shift a little bit to reflect sort of more on the impact of the book and things that we can take away from it, um, which you've spoken to a little bit already. In a general sense, what do you hope, you know, the range of scholars and activists and even, you know, actors that are on the ground, whether they be participants to the conflict or people from sort of an international background, whether it be sort of a UN peacekeeper or a development aid worker, what do you hope this sort of range of actors might gain from this study?
1: I I, I would like to think that the book would reaffirm the importance of the local and the everyday, and um, mean that we need to take it as seriously as we take the elite and the high political. I would also hope that the book is a celebration of small steps, of the first piece, of things that we that might easily be dismissed as negative piece or not very ambitious. Because very often, in conflict-affected societies, the situation is so raw and so dangerous that it is actually very difficult um, for people to make the first move in terms of conciliation, in terms of tolerance and coexistence. And whilst we we might dismiss this as minor, as ineffective, as reinforcing a conflict system... Actually, I think we have to celebrate these small gains and see that the first piece, the first shaking of hands between traders uh, in northern Nigeria or in Myanmar actually might lead to something else. It might be an exemplar that might mean that situations of intergroup exchange might be normalized. So there's a lot of talk in, in the literature about Factoring things up for me, that's important, but also, I think we need to concentrate on how we can factor out how we can spread horizontally notions and practices of civility, and all of these usually start very small and then hopefully can spread out. So I hope that that would be the the, the main message from the book, that we need to celebrate um, these small first steps towards peace, because they might lead to something more significant.
0: Mm. Thank you, definitely. So the next question is perhaps a little bit tricky, and maybe not good interview practice. (laughs) Um, As I've read your book, and and you mentioned, uh, as you've recently been in Northern Ireland a bit more, you've been you know, you've sort of had your everyday peace glasses on, if you will, and you've been seeing and looking at that as you, you move around. Um, and I just wondered if you might have any reflections on thinking about just the UK itself with the last year or two with you know, sort of the impact of Brexit, uh, you know, all, sort of the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement, the removal of you know, something like April Colston's statue in Bristol, covid and what could be described as a distinct lack of sociality and reciprocity or even definitely so, uh, solidarity. So outside of these more you know, intense conflict areas, how might everyday peace and everyday peace power help us in these kinds of situations, right, where well, we're in the global north and you know, we have all these sort of uh, social disruptors, if you will?
1: I I think that's a great question, Chris, because as I mentioned earlier, there's a tendency that we think of conflict as happening over there, somewhere far, far away, and we exoticize it and orientalize it. And certainly looking at the United Kingdom, but a number of other uh, countries, uh, notably the United States, one can see how political discourse has become coarse. It has become very intolerant. We can see the um, inflation of culture wars, um, these very uh, sort of synthetic outrage that is created by uh, speech acts and people run miles towards them to find offence. And I really do look back at these notions of sociality reciprocity and solidarity and think that actually there there is a lot that can come from the everyday peace playbook that can be applied to societies that nominally are at peace that are regarded as somehow civilized and somehow democratic but actually contain very significant exclusion and Dysfunction. So I, I do think that those of us that are interested in, in peace, really, there is a lot of opportunity for us to unpack notions of peace, peacefulness, civicness in our own societies, um, because, you know, you're probably aware um, from... Being based in the United States, but I'm picking up increasing literature that is uh, suggesting that some of the uh, precipitants of civil war actually can be found in the United States. And you know, without being too alarmist, if we project ourselves forward by a decade or two, are we really facing a situation of? societal decline, where we would be facing civil war in societies that nominally are democracies. So I think peace studies has an urgent task, not just in societies that we um, uh, can easily class as suffering from conflict and violence, but also it needs to, to look into societies. Uh, in the global north and be aware of the factors that are um, stoking up conflict and in some cases actually leading to violence.
0: Mm. No, that's very helpful. And uh, just in the same way that perhaps a a top-down international intervention, negotiation perspective, you know, sort of uh, pushing peace down to the bottom in, you know, the global South, in the same way, here in the global North, we can observe, you know, very superficial, uh, perhaps narratives, and again, like right, these very, um, I suppose, contentious discourse around, you know, what's going to happen, and but those, both of those kinds of narratives, then miss out, perhaps, what's happening underneath, and these you know, applications and versions of sociality, reciprocity, and, and solidarity. So, thank you for that. Uh, so just to kind of start wrapping up a little bit here, I'm wondering if you have in mind now for the future sort of next steps, not only for the Everyday Peace Indicators project, but then also for the research you've done as part of the book here as a whole. Is there anything that's sort of coming next on the horizon for this for you? Uh,
1: yes. Everyday Peace Indicators has been fortunate in, in going from strength to strength. And we're we're working in, in a number of countries from Bosnia to to Colombia, to Georgia on these indicators. But fascinatingly, some colleagues in the Everyday Peace Indicators uh, Cooperative are working in the United States uh, on issues of safety in societies, in in cities in which there is tension between um, the police force and and mainly the African-American community. So I think that that's really fascinating that we're bringing the the study of peace and conflict to the global north. Um, I've also been fortunate enough to be funded to to look at the micro dynamics of peace and conflict. In other words, the tactical agency um, actions and stances that are used for everyday peace. And we're going to be looking at, at communities in Northern Ireland, Lebanon, and Columbia. Uh, and I'm, I'm working with Roddy Brett, who's at the University of Bristol on that. And it'll be really fun to empirically um, investigate many of the concepts that I've floated in the book and to see if they, if they actually um, exist in, in real life. So I'm really looking forward to, the, to working on that over the yeah. next couple of years.
0: Oh, no, that And that sounds really exciting to be able to then road test um, and sort of to keep the, the evolution of it going. And I'm wondering for our listeners who are interested in the Everyday Peace Indicators project, is there a data set that's available or do we have to you know wait for future publications to, well, to get our we, hands on this information?
1: We have a great website, which is simply everydaypeaceindicators.org. Uh, there's lots of information um, there in English, Spanish, Spanish and French, and possibly a little Arabic as well. We've got cool cartoons. We've got lots of data, uh, data sets and um, how-to guides. So it's um, it's it's all out there.
0: Fantastic. I'm glad we could plug that here. That's, been, that's great. Uh,
1: so just to wrap
0: up, one last question for you. Typically um, on the New Books Network, we ask our authors – about any kinds of uh, books, films or plays even that have influenced you and your work. Um, And I'm wondering then if there are three, perhaps in particular, you could recommend to our listeners.
1: Um, Can I just recommend one? Um, Normally, I'm very excited about the book that I've just read. Um, So a book that I've just finished, which was really, really good, is called Frontline. Saving Lives in War, Disaster and Disease. It's by Tony Redmond. And Tony was an A&E doctor from the United Kingdom who was one of the global leaders in setting up the system for emergency medical assistance after disasters and war. And Tony and his colleagues learned the hard way by you know, um, being in Iran after an earthquake, by going to conflict zones in in Iraq uh, and many many other places, particularly uh, the Balkans, and every page of this book is filled with an ethical or a practical dilemma, and it really isn't a case in these situations of doing no harm; it's doing less harm because there are no completely optimal outcomes. So I was hugely impressed by it. it it's published uh, this year, 2021, by Harper North. And just the title again, Frontline, Saving Lives in War, Disaster and Disease. And it, it's one of those books that slam dunk It's going on to my reading lists for teaching purposes.
0: Fantastic. Well, and I'm excited to pick that up now as well. So you did a a great job selling that one. So yeah, that's Tony Redmond, uh, Frontline Saving Lives. Okay, well, that's about our time. Uh, Thanks, Roger, for joining us. Um, And again, the book we've been talking about is Everyday Peace, uh, published by Oxford University Press this year.
1: Thank you very much, Chris. I, I appreciate it enormously. Thank you.
0: No problem. You're welcome.